Hey guys, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential. I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Thank you for joining me this week for a very special interview with documentarian and now memoirist Erin Lee Carr. So, four years after the death of her father, beloved and acclaimed journalist David Carr, Erin's written a truly honest and beautiful memoir called All That You Leave Behind. Erin joined me to talk about the book, about her relationship with her dad and their ups and downs. The almost 2,000 emails, texts, and Google chats that they wrote to each other with advice and thoughts. She talked about her early childhood and her dad's addiction, as well as her own struggles with addiction. And, of course, David Carr's journalistic legacy, and his best advice to her as she continues her career as documentary filmmaker. Just last year, Aaron Lee Carr was featured in Forbes magazine's 30 Under 30 Most Influential People in Media. Her documentary work, many in the true crime genre, have gotten a lot of attention. One of her latest is, for example, Mommy, Dead and Dearest for HBO. And her upcoming film is At the Heart of Gold, Inside the USA Gymnastics Scandal. It's about the sexual abuse scandal that shook the sports world in 2017. And now she's written her first book, a very personal and brutally honest memoir, much in the tradition of her father, journalist David Carr. He wrote the book The Night of the Gun that came out in 2009. There he investigated his years as a crack addict, being a single parent to Aaron and her twin sister Megan through addiction and recovery, and his journey to celebrated columnist at the New York Times. David Carr's journalism meant so much to so many. For the record, I interviewed him around 2008, and we continued to work and talk through the years. Like so many others, I joined the chorus of fans and thankful friends. David Carr was a completely unique and brilliant person, always curious and present. He was generous to me in good times and bad, and he gave the most straightforward career advice. And he always, always talked about his girls, his three daughters, Aaron, Megan, and Maddie, and his wife, Jill. So I'm so happy to talk to Aaron Lee Carr. We talked the day after the release of her book. Aaron Lee Carr, thank you so much for coming on the show, and congratulations on your very powerful book, All That You Leave Behind. Thank you. Thrilled to be talking about it with you. So you had your big release party yesterday evening. Um, how was it? So I, I do not deal with a tremendous amount of social anxiety, but uh, it was in Brooklyn and it was starting to like really thunder and rain heavily. And I was just like, is this God cursing me? Like, no one is going to come to this. It's at a bookstore in Brooklyn. Like how on earth are people going to come to this? And so I had this deep moment of panic and I was with my best friends and they were just like, listen, what will be will be, and I really doubt it will be an empty room. And I think everybody I love and cared about was there, despite being a little rained on. But it was it was like a truly beautiful event. You, of course, you suffered a devastating loss. And you're reading your emails that you and your dad um, sent to each other in your book. You you really realize that that he was more than just a parent. I mean, he was a mentor in your life, in love and work. Um, why did you decide to write this book? The sort of origin story is, you know, uh, I'm a documentary filmmaker by trade. But when he died, I kept returning back and back to to his emails, to his G-chats, 
to the, the few uh, sort of texts that I had and a voicemail just to hear his voice. I remember typing in David Carr to YouTube and, you know, watching his UC Berkeley speech. And I think that anybody that undergoes a loss, you know, you're going to, you have a sort of consistent pattern where your, your brain returns to the person. And so I think that I just kept going back to these sort of archival elements. I don't think it was unhealthy. It was like a way of coping. And actually I was really grateful that they existed. And on the year anniversary of my father's death, I wrote a very quick, like 800 word piece about like a couple of the lessons that I'd learned while going through this sort of seismic shift of before and after in terms of the death and Random House reached out to me and said, you know, I think there's a book here. And I was like, you know, I've read Wild. What if I go on an amazing bike trip or something? And I, I, you know, I find, I find and recover my sort of, you know, my my relationship with him. And they were like, no, that we're not as interested in that. <laughs> we are interested in the sort of this digital evidence that he left behind these emails. Like, could you share a couple of the emails with us? And so I kind of had a moment of hesitation. But I think ultimately I decided to do it because I wanted, you know, I wanted his words out there. And I think that I had to deal with a lot of inner critic being like, you know, you're you're just 30. You don't have a book in you. And it's like if somebody's asking you to write a book, just try. Tell me a little bit about those emails. So I remember I, I looked at my Gmail and all in all in all, there was 1936 emails. And that's like, you know, with the hey, get some bread or you're late, you idiot. But some of them were these long moving sort of beautiful pieces about the, the pain moments in my life. Um, you know, if I had been fired, which I was, I was fired and I was devastated. And, you know, he, he sent me an email saying, we will go from here. Uh, and that I was a good journalist and a good daughter. And I think that it just became this tradition in our family when, when moments big or small happen, we wrote an email to sort of commemorate it. And I think that's what's cool about sort of my dad and his writing styles. He wrote amazing, amazingly well in his columns, but that translated to his sort of personal correspondence as well. Not with just with me, with others as well. Mm-hmm. I've gotten this feedback from Brian Stelter, from Nick Filton, from Lena Dunham, from, you know, the people that he he knew and cherished that, you know, he wrote great emails. And I think it's a beautiful thing. So many of us were touched by the memoir he wrote, um, which was an incredible book, The Night of the Gun. Do you remember sort of uh, you were around, of course, when he wrote this, but your reaction, did you read it? And what was your reaction? Yeah, of course. So my dad wrote his book. And I remember I was sitting in my room in the family house in New Jersey and he came up to me, you know, with this big, like this big pile of papers. It was his manuscript. And he was just like, hey, uh, would you, I think you should read this, you know, give me your feedback. Let me know if there's anything too spicy in there. Spicy is what we called things when it was like, you know, the taste line and things like that. And so and in high school, I had to read the book, The Night of the Gun, which should have an age limit on it. Um, I did have some notes. <laughs> I don't think I would be David Carr's kid if I did not have some notes, but like, honestly, I was completely blown away by the writing and prose and what he I just like he just had such a unique way of saying things differently whether it talked about like sauteing crack or being an up-and-comer in the media space like 
I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I reread it the past year and, you know, it's, it's, it's a brutal but so beautiful book. He used to say you write in your book so often to you that everything good started with you. And, of course, what he describes that was in The Night of the Gun is what was before you. Um, and you describe the first time that you were really confronted with your parents' past as a child. It's you, the first time you had a real play date with a friend. Can you, can you describe that? So, yes. The, you know, I think that my dad was able to communicate that we were a different sort of family. Um, he was our father. We had our stepmom, um, but our mom was our mom, but she was no longer here. And so he explained those sort of things, like talking to us a little bit what drugs were, what alcohol was. But he didn't go super dark and heavy into it. But I remember that you know, when, when I had my first play date with this young, uh, this young kid named Alex, you know, she wanted, she didn't understand why I called, uh, Jill, Jill instead of my mom. And I explained it. And, you know, I think that her alarm bells went off probably upon my retelling of my parents as of drug addicts as drug addicts, excuse me. And she was like, I'm not getting in the car. And she refused to get in the car, um, to go to McDonald's with my dad and I, and my dad was like, what, what is going on? What did you tell her? And so then he sat my sister and I, my twin sister down on the couch and said like, you know, this is the real story and you have to be careful about who you tell it to. And how did you react to him telling you the real story then when you were so young? I mean, what were your thoughts? I kind of, I remember the, if I was being totally honest with you, Christina, like I remember him sitting us down but I don't remember how I reacted. Like, it's almost like there are these, these sort of gaps in my memory when it comes to childhood. Like, I kind of kept fighting with my editor. I was like, mm -hmm. I don't remember any of this. I, I have no idea, and, you know, because I the, the, we have a small amount of childhood stuff. And she's like, well, you were a child and you remember some of it, so let's go through it. And so it was a real struggle to try to remember that. And, you know, I've, I've worked on it with my therapist, sort of like, why don't I remember these things? And I think that, like, sometimes, you know, you remember the big moments, but the the sort of the after is gone. But so when you read Night of the Gun and that especially, you know, like one of the things he tells um, when he left you and your sister in your snowsuits in the car to go in and, and score crack and it's such a chilling scene. How did, I mean, you didn't remember it, of course, but how did you react at that? Were you shocked? I remember... Um, listening to my dad did was on the moth and he basically told that story about leaving us in our in the car and we could have frozen to death and I it was almost like I couldn't relate that I was the kid in the snowsuit but then mm -hmm. I had to I really had mm -hmm. to think about it and it made me I don't know. It sort of devastated me that the, that he had gone that far into addiction and that we came that close to dying. I mean, I guess it really told me like what addiction looks like. It, it, it you know, it is sort of it's there's no reason or rationality associated with it. It's need and desire and all things sort of go. You you are not in control. And so it taught me a lot of things about addiction that would actually be my undoing because I thought that's what it looked like. Right, because you're very honest in, in the book about your own alcohol addiction. 
so do you mean that you you didn't realize that you had an alcohol addiction because this is what you thought addiction was your father's story well it's not just that it's really it's our societal messaging when it comes to addiction it's you lose the job you lose the house your your husband leaves you the dog the dog dies like it's this one you know unfortunate event after another where you are left um, homeless and penniless and like that's when it's time to stop drinking you know I think that people don't want to stop mm-hmm. drinking because it's you know, it's, it's, it's so much uh, embedded within the fabric of our culture that sometimes you get pushed to the point of extreme for letting it go. And I think that something that I really wanted to telegraph in the book is if you are quietly and slowly getting blackout every night, that's not healthy, that's not normal, and that is what alcoholism looks like. And, you know, I feel a lot of deep gratitude that I had somebody close in my life that was watching me saying, hey, this is not normal, you know, you should consider stopping. Not you need to stop, not I'm gonna put you into rehab against your will, not I'm gonna come to your apartment and take you and you're gonna live at my house in New Jersey. No, it was you have control over this, figure this out and take the next right action. Right, and this is David that's saying these things too is what you mean. And you've been sober for a long time now. When you get dark, when you miss your father, when you're working on these topics in the documentary, um, documentaries that you're working on, what do you do today? Well, my therapist and I have talked about not watching true crime at night. (laughs) Good good thing. I I love making true crime. I love filmmaking, but I kept like, you know, like watching the case against uh, Anand Syed, like I was watching it and I was like having all these ideas, but then I would have terrible dreams. And so we're working on what are some happy things that I can fill my brain with at night. I live in an amazing building in Brooklyn where I pet a lot of dogs. I really sort of like like thinking about that. And honestly, it's it's just calling another person and indexing into their own life. And I, I think as a, a memoirist and as a filmmaker, I can get pretty sort of you know, stuck on myself and what's going on. And, you know, that's, that's a really boring way to live. And so reminding myself that there are other stories, other people and connecting with other people on it. You write in the book about a couple of relapses that your father had. And of course, he wasn't around when you wrote this memoir. How would you, how do you feel about writing and, you know, not being able to ask him about um, telling those kind of stories? even though he told everything about himself, but. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's it's a, it's one of the things that I have deep conflict about. And I think that if someone were to criticize the book, I would understand that criticism, um, telling somebody else's relapse versus my own, uh, which I do, I do talk about my own relapse, but I think that it was, I, I grappled with it and, okay and thought I was a part of his relapse and you know how and we did communicate about it so how can I tell this story in a way that feels you know like he has control and then I'm retelling the events but then I was really like the night of the gun was so brutally honest like I honestly think if I asked him he would be okay with it Mm -hmm. now is that okay with my family is it information that they want out there no so I think that you know as writers and as storytellers being thoughtful about these things while being honest 
and being true to the story is an incredibly fine line to navigate. And I mean, one of the things your father said, and, and you know, many of us who have had addiction around us, is, I mean, this is an ongoing battle. I mean, it's not a surprise in any way, and it's an incredible to keep at it. I mean, relapse is a, yeah, is a part of recovery. And I think that there is this sort of, um, oh, did you hear she relapsed? There's this sort of connotation of failure when it comes to relapse, which I think is total bullshit. And like alcoholics are going to drink. People who love drugs and were obsessed with are going to use drugs. Um, it is a miracle every day if you don't use. So I think that um, displacing some of that rhetoric around uh, shame around relapse is important. And I think that, you know, it's just, it's, it's basically, you know, his relapse was a part of his path to sobriety. And like being very clear that the majority of my life, my father was a sober person. I did not, you know, I, I do recall the, 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 the really scary moments when he drive drunk with us, uh, when he, when I was working in media in my twenties, when I, you know, I saw him drink but the reasons why those exist in the book is because they're exceptions. He was mostly writing, thinking, talking as a sober person. And so, uh, you know, he existed in those sort of multitudes. So you have become a documentary filmmaker, some incredible true crime documentaries, I think. For me, your themes have often been about very interesting, complicated women and, and dark topics, as I was saying. Um, can you tell me a couple of the cases that you've worked on for Vice and HBO, say? Sure. So I started off earlier in my career making things about men. There was Cody Wilson, who was 3D printing weapons. And I made a Vice short about him that I think got like 5 million views the first week. And then for my directorial debut, I um, went into a prison and started talking to a guy um, that was nicknamed the Cannibal Cop. And he was convicted of a conspiracy to kidnap, rape, torture, and eat women. And it was very important to say the word conspiracy because he never did it. Um, there was digital evidence that he was about to plan and plot and kidnap these women, but he didn't do it. And so I started visiting him in prison and he actually got out based on a, a ruling post-conviction of insufficient evidence, which never happens. And so it was this really weird, grisly film about, you know, the darkest thoughts in we, we have in our head and that the in internet renders them visual. But like, what does that mean? Are those thoughts or are those actions? And so that was called Thought Crimes for HBO. And then my next film was really sad, weird mm -hmm. one about a young girl who was forced to live in a wheelchair for 17 years of her life because her mother had something called Munchausen by proxy. We have, see, that's been a lot of talked about here in Sweden as well. But writing this book, I mean, it's fascinating to see the emails between you and your dad um, about work and, and the advice he gives and, and, um, and how you really rise on your own to sort of take take another you take another direction than his journalism really but was it hard to you know be kind of following in his footsteps at least in in the media world yeah i think that it, it you know david carr leaves a big shadow you know he his sort of work ethic his you know 400,000 people on twitter his ability to be generous with you, with others, with his time. I just, I was like, how do you do this? Like, that has been one of the ultimate sort of 
questions that exist in my brain. I'm like, I just don't understand how he did all of it. And so it's kind of, you know, like for me to try to measure up against that is an impossible task. So I need to really be thoughtful about, you know, what are, what are some of the things that I can do, but what, what are, what are the, some of the things that are just David Carr and just something for me to admire? Because one of the things that I heard, I think I heard it in an, in an interview with you, um, that I felt like Aaron has, she has her own set of cojones <laughs> and she really knows what she's doing. That is the pool camera story where you were going to film um, the trial and you actually convinced that your documentary team yes. was to use the pool camera. And I thought that was that was some balls at coming in as a young woman and taking all these sort of journos who are used to, to um, standing there and doing that. And you actually, you know, you did that. You convinced them that to take that spot. Maybe you can tell it. You tell it better than I do. Yeah, so for the trial, the, excuse me, for the trial against Michelle Carter, the young woman who was accused of involuntary manslaughter, it's the case in the United States where the where a young woman was texting her boyfriend to kill himself and he actually did. I knew I was going to be covering it for HBO, but I knew that, you know, interviewing Michelle Carter was a long it was a long shot. And so the fact that the trial was taking place and that a camera was going to be allowed in the courtroom was a really significant development. So I thought, okay, the news is going to shoot this one way. The news has a certain way of shooting it and documentary has another way of shooting it. I need for this footage to be usable. So we actually convinced the, the court registry office to allow us to do the pool camera uh, so that we could get the type of footage we wanted. But then, of course, there were so many sort of technological additions or, you know, problems associated with doing something like that. So the first day we did it and it, and it didn't work. You have to basically if you're the pool camera, you have to shoot the footage and then relay the footage back to all these news trucks so that they can put it out. And it wasn't working. And I just started to just drip sweat from my head. And I basically <laughs> turned to a guy like the most, he looked like the most seasoned guy in the room. And I said, this is not working. What is going wrong? If you had to guess what the problem is, what would you do? And he was like, well, I think it's the converter box, but it could be 70 other things. I was like, well, let's try the converter box. And it was the converter box and he totally saved the day. So I did not save the day at all. And I, I like came in the next day and I, everyone was like, oh, you know, like this fucking HBO people, God damn it. And I was like, I have brownies. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it just was like, they were like, oh, God, this is, I, I'm very shocked that they did not kick me out. But, well, I just think that whole story was, is something that, that Dave, I mean, that just shows that you, you know, you know, you need that camera. You're going to do it. Things go wrong. You bring donuts. <laughs> Our uh, unification tactic. But the thing about David is that he was so open. I mean, he was he was open to media in general. He was a Twitter wizard, um, as you mentioned, and he had he wrote about new media. He was, but he was also f just greatly honored the tradition of of journalism. What was the best journalistic advice he gave you? What was some of the things that you took with you? In terms of the things that my dad taught me about journalism, it really it really comes down to understanding and knowing the story. Um, so for, for me, that means going into a house and not bringing all the camera equipment, looking at somebody and, you know, 
through the whites of their eyes, um, telling them who I am, telling them what I think that we're doing here, but really saying, you know, I'm interested in what you think the story is. There's this amazing film called Page One, uh, which some people are, you know, probably familiar that Andrew Rossi directed. And you can see my dad have a, having a conversation mm -hmm. with a source where he kind of leans back and he's like, you know, tell me what you think the story is. And I think that when he was going around kind of doing interviews for the film, people are like, that's so weird. Why did you ask? Like, that's not typically what we think journalists ask. And, you know, he redefined what it was like to be a curious journalist. And I think that's something I, you know, I really love doing. And I, I thank God that I'm not trying to work at the New York Times and, you know, literally being in his shadow. I get to do journalism my own way with my own sort of magic with some David Carrisms. So I think that it's sort of the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. He also had such nice, I mean, one of the things he used to say was like, you know, find the underdog and, and you are who you run with and things like that, where he, he just really felt like he, he looked at everyone, not just the big important um, honchos up at the top or the celebrities, that he never forgot anyone at any level, I feel. And I feel like you do that too. You really go after the real story and the real people behind the story. Well, I mean, it's just kind of like, I, I think that, you know, to make films about celebrities, you have to give them over a certain amount of control. And there's this huge sort of this thing happening in documentary where, you know, celebrities are the EPs on project. They're giving notes. I don't know if I buy that. So now I, I work on things where the subjects are not going to be EPs. But for example, I, you know, I finished the sex abuse film in, within USA Gymnastics, and that's going to be on HBO. Um, you know, I did not have control there. It was really important that the survivors of their own story felt like they could talk about what they wanted to talk about and not talk about what they wanted to in the interview. So that was, you know, reconfiguring my process as a journalist and director depending on the story was a huge growth moment you know I think that it's I had one way of doing it but as we know as as storytellers you have to change based on the story um you mentioned page one there's a there's a pretty famous scene there where your father gets into a discussion with the, the vice um people and you actually started working at vice did you guys did he, you know, have thoughts on your you working with them or their journalism and such between the two of you? You know, I started working there after that sort of that argument, let's say, between my dad and it was Sarush Alvi, Shane Smith, and Eddie Moretti was in the room. And I think that, you know, I, I think it was this great moment because my dad stepped to Shane and pushed him back a little bit. And can you, you describe know, what he was? What he was. So, doing? so basically, Shane, you know, in this moment, it's a great clip on YouTube. I really recommend it. You know, Shane was saying that Vice was doing reporting in, I believe it was Africa, where you know that they were doing the real reporting, and that you know the New York Times is reporting on surfing, and like Vice is here to you know to save journalism. That's, he didn't say that, but it was basically sort of the inference. <laughs> right. And my dad said, wait, wait a second. He interrupted him, stared at him and said, before you were ever here, the New York times were reporting about genocide after genocide 
um, you know, just because you, you know, put on a safari helmet and look at fucking poo doesn't give you the right. So continue. <laughs> it's just like, oh my God, like everyone's just like, what? Right. Like there's very few moments, like kind of a lot of people would let Shane do his thing and in in the piece insult him for being like, you know, he he basically, he compares himself to the New York Times. But my dad is so rigorous and so honest that in the moment, he was not going to let anyone diss the New York Times. And the film reflected in a positive way what he thought about Vice. So it's just like, I don't know. When I'm in a room and somebody steps to me or I need to step to someone, I try to remember that moment. That's fucking crazy. So the actual our audience goes, that's fucking insane. Like, that's nuts. And the New York Times, meanwhile, is writing about surfing. And, and, and I'm sitting there going, you know what? I'm not going to talk about surfing. I'm going to talk about can- cannibalism because that fucks me just up. Just a sec. Time out. Before you ever went there, we've had reporters there reporting on genocide after genocide. Just because you put on a fucking safari helmet and went and looked at some poop doesn't give you the right to insult what we do. So continue. Continue. I'm just saying that I'm not a journalist. I'm not there to report. Obviously. Go ahead. I'm just talking about, you know, look what I saw there. There's so many things that happen all the time where I'm like, oh, what would David have written about this and that? I mean, one of the things that his life shows and, 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 and your book shows also is, you know, how people deserve second chances and possibilities to have second chances to prove themselves and how, you know, incredible they are underneath. And, and now today in our sort of Twitter culture, there's a lot of people who don't get, you know, second chances after you know, they say something wrong or something happens or they make big mistakes. Um, How do you think he would have felt about this? I mean, I think that the world has sort of turned over on its head and it is a dazzling but terrifying time to be alive. You know, I I don't begin to know what he would say about it, but I, I think that you know, this sort of fake news evolution needs to be combated with truth, with honesty, and with supporting journalism. I think that it is a fundamental time to support journalism in its efforts, and I think that he would have been leading the charge. And I think that, you know, I'm really, you know, amazed by the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal that they have really come and stepped to the plate as we sort of just talked about in our earlier, you know, talking point, you know, politics has stepped to journalism and it is up to journalism how it continues. There's a very strong chapter in your book about the, you know, the day that he passes away and you're at the hospital and when the story gets out on Twitter, even before you've had a chance to really breathe and to, to, you know, take it all in. And the world was already writing, you know, about your dad. I mean, mostly out of love, but I mean, still, you, you, you need a chance to mourn. Is it a blessing to have had to share your dad with the world or is it, it has it been very difficult? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that when it first happened, I was horrified how intrusive the internet felt when he died. People feeling like they needed to reach out to me immediately to talk about my dad. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with my family. This is not about the internet. And then as, you know, as time continued, I found myself having gratitude 
for people caring about him, for caring about his work, for remembering him. And I think that many people who lose a parent or a sibling or basically anybody close to them, it's an isolating experience. You can't stop thinking about it, but you know, we are taught that grief should be, you know, about three months long, you should get over it, you shouldn't talk about it. Um, you know, to talk about it is to make others feel uncomfortable. We do not have a good framework around around loss. And so I think that my dad being a public person in his own right through journalism and people really feeling like he knew him because of Twitter created this, oh, I miss him. And it's okay to say that I miss him. And other people feeling the same way. So it really was an outpouring. Could you describe the place you are in now? It's been four years since he passed and and um how are you doing how are you feeling i i really thought people were liars when they said that time would help i could not envision a time where the loss did not feel so seismic because my dad was not only my dad but he was my mother my mentor a confidant he was a reporter who i loved the whole felt too great and so the first couple of years was just, I, I just felt like, I felt sad a lot of the time. I felt like I sort of had been fractured in a way that like kind of, there was a before and after. I had a really hard time being around like my, you know, my partner's family. I thought that, you know, this is bullshit. You know, I don't like being, I don't like the fact that other people have fathers now that I don't have one. And that was an insane way to feel. It was it was truly insane. And through some some crucial self work, I was able to recognize that these people are not replacements, but it's really good to be around family. It's really good to feel that sort of that love and that compassion. And I think that to to remain hardened against any sort of paternal relationships would be a, a big loss for me. And so I think opening myself up slowly to other sort of relationships and having sort of being just less, I don't know, less difficult about it all uh, was important. And now I feel like I can be around families and I can be around my own family and I, I can write this book and people are like, that was quick. That was crazy. How did you do that? And I was like, it was not quick. Really? It was 18 months. Mm -hmm. It was five revisions. It was a lot of work by my, you know, my agent Meg who copy edited, like who line edited the book with me and then went through drafts with Random House. I mean, like if anybody were to say like, wow, you did that quick, I will very quickly uh, sort of remind them about what the process has been like. So I don't know if I answered your question, but I think the answer is I'm doing okay and I'm happy that this book exists. Thank you so much for sharing it with us, just as your father did, and sharing it from a completely different perspective. Thank you so much, Aaron. I wish you the best of luck with this great book, and it was so nice that you took the time to talk to me about it and, and with your work as well. Thank you for loving my dad and for your thoughtful questions. I really appreciated it. Thank you so much to Erin Lee Carr. Her book is All That You Leave Behind, and I highly recommend it. And thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and send us your thoughts on Twitter, at PodPopCulture, or to me, at Christina Biro.
This show was edited by Katrin Lundell and I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. See you next time. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.